0: This is Dan Cassetta, the host of Changing Lives, Selling Knives. Last week, a black man named George Floyd died while in police custody, and the primary officer involved has been charged with murder. This event, more than any other that I've seen, has sparked national and international outrage, and that outrage has crossed all racial groups in our country. We have an opportunity right now to do something that truly changes lives in our society. As I saw this unfolding, I decided that I had to do something myself. And so I invited several prominent African-American leaders from my own Vector Cutco community to have a conversation about this. What follows is a series of thoughts and ideas about what happened, about the experience of being black in America, ideas on how we can begin to solve some of the problems facing us today, and even some thoughts on the role that leaders in Vector could play in helping others. While this is a difficult and possibly controversial topic, I felt it was too important to miss this opportunity. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Buddy Boyd, Greg Cothran, and Kenny Coleman. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world Welcome, everybody. I'm here today with uh, three prominent African American leaders from my own community. We have Buddy Boyd, who is a division manager with Vector in the Frontier Division, which is headquartered in Kansas City. We have Greg Catherine, who is a division manager in the New York, New Jersey Division, headquartered in Northern New Jersey. And uh, we have Kenny Coleman, who's been on the podcast. Good friend of mine for many years and a very prominent in the Silicon Valley community and a leader in the field of diversity and inclusion. Gentlemen, we're here talking and having this conversation tonight because a pretty important thing has happened in our society in the last uh, week or so. An African-American man, George Floyd, was killed in police custody in Minneapolis, and it has sparked significant protests all around the country some would say riots in many of the areas as well, and it's been a very difficult and polarizing experience for our country. I personally felt like this was too important of a subject to ignore and wanted to have a conversation about it, so happy to have the three of you guys on here to talk about this. Thank you guys so much for making time to be here tonight.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah. I want to uh, just begin with hearing some of your initial thoughts on how you felt as this started going down. Greg, maybe you can tee off on this one. What were some of your initial thoughts as this experience began to unfold?
2: Sure. I think watching the video, I mean, I'm sure there's a flood of emotions all of this experience, but uh, frustration, probably a little bit of anger, maybe. I think towards the end of it, there was a feeling of maybe like helplessness. Just watching a handful of people try and help and there was really nothing they could do. Like I wanted to, through the camera, like say something or see if I could do something. And it was just, just really sad just to see that being how it all unfolded, you know? And, uh, I think there's a lot of people that maybe that were watching it or were experiencing it firsthand that really, really just couldn't do anything about it. And when I, when I think about everyone's reaction, even the extreme reactions, which You know Whether or not you can condone, I think I could really understand it. I I could see why people are doing things that are very out of character for what they would normally do. So I think all of that's just very unsettling. And I guess we'll see how things are moving forward. But that's kind of my initial reaction.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Buddy, how about you? Well, unfortunately, I feel like I've been kind of numb to this over the last decade. Hmm. Like it happens kind of often. So it's just another thing. And that was my initial reaction. I didn't watch the video uh, really until probably two days ago or a few days after it actually happened. And it was really on the, the request of my wife because a lot of her friends were asking her about it. You know, I have a white wife, I've mixed race kids and, and, uh, I just kind of don't like to get involved in the social justice realm. And I was focusing on other things. I have little kids, I'm busy with work I'm just trying to do my stay in my own lane And then my wife brought up to me the importance of, you know, we've got mixed race kids. This is a conversation we need to have. And you're also, you know, in a position and one of the few people of color in your role. And so you you probably need to stand for something. So um, that's why I was pretty excited to talk to you about this and start to formulate my opinion on it.
0: Yeah. Cool. Cool. How how about you, Kenny? Tell me about uh,
3: your reaction. I mean, I think it's been a roller coaster of emotions anger you know sad disappointment right i mean here we go again right i mean those are the kind of feelings that you know are all over the place right it's hard not to be angry and then get to like once again to feel like you just we just can't get justice right and so it was pretty overwhelming and then you see the protests and the riots and you know, you start to get a, a sense of pride, like, hey, we're not going to stand for this anymore, right? We're going to the, bring the punch back to them. And then, you know, you see other, other cultures, other races joining in, other countries joining in. And it, it, it fills you with, with, with some hope at the end of it, right? And, and some mm-hmm. pride. And so I think it's just emotions all over the board.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, you know, part of the reason why I wanted to have this conversation is so that the audience of Vector and Cutco reps and managers could be a part of helping to do something about this i don't know that any one person listening can, um, can necessarily be responsible for doing everything to change what goes on in our society but uh, you know there's a saying that uh, no no single raindrop ever was responsible for the flood and if every individual can think about you know their own role their own piece, I do think that we, as an organization and Vector, have a, a lot of power to make a lot of difference because we have a lot of people. So, those are some some thoughts that kind of came to my mind as I was thinking about this conversation that uh, that we are going to have. I want to ask you guys a little bit about your experiences growing up because I think that a key for anyone listening, particularly anyone listening who is not a person of color, is to develop a sense of understanding or perspective of what your experiences have been like. And so I wanted to ask you guys, you know, growing up black, what was an experience you had or experiences you had that really illuminated for you the challenges with race in our society? And Kenny, I'm going to let you tee off on this one.
3: I think the interesting thing about my upbringing was I grew up in the suburbs. I grew up around mostly white Asians and not a ton of blacks. And so it's funny when you asked this question originally. I I think of certain things come to mind that are really kind of out there racist. But then you, when when you really deeply think back, a lot of situations come up where you know, dang, that actually was racist. But I'm just I was just immune to it because it was just what I grew up in. It was kind of what I was I was used to. If you will. Mm-hmm. And so I know for a fact, like there's like some white parents or Asian parents when I was growing up who. May have loved me, may have enjoyed me being friends with their kids, but they would never like want me to marry their daughter or something like that, right? Like that's just it would be a no-no just because I'm black, right? right? And so things like that, where you don't think of them at the time, it's pretty, you know, it stands out pretty starkly now. And so um, also when I went to Utah, when I went to Utah State, we had paid for an uh, apartment and kind of went through all the logistics with the apartment manager but they had never seen our faces, never only heard our voice on the phone. And when we, we drove all the way out there and got there, all of a sudden the apartment was rented out and filled, right? Despite us already having that prearranged. And so just things like that that have have stood out. And then, you know, you hear stories uh, from, you know, my dad and even like football players and like NFL players that used to mentor me when I was growing up, where the way they had to think was, I have to be twice as good as the white person across from me or I can't, I won't survive. Right. And so they tell me about those stories. He just made you think that even at a young age, that even people that had money, they were still getting it and had status. They were still getting, getting, getting those feelings from racist people. So I had like really a lot of different experiences.
0: Yeah. I can recall Kenny and I have this group that we Hosts for dinners that has some of the most prominent African Americans in the Silicon Valley who are part of the group, and some of these guys have talked about some of their success experiences and detailed exactly what you said, Kenny, that they felt like they had to be twice as good as their white counterparts in order to get the same recognition or the same opportunities. That there was a lot of extra pressure that was placed on them, you know, because of that. And I could see how that could be something that could be very difficult to manage and,
1: and, and to, to deal with. How
0: about for you, buddy? Can you share us? Uh any of your experiences?
1: Yeah. yeah. So I grew up in the inner city and I'm one of the eight kids right in the middle. And I think that's kind of what I say that because it kind of frames my tendency to kind of stay out of stuff. I think. And I think my parents did a phenomenal job of really exposing me to all different uh, racial environments. So we were part of like probably the worst school district in Kansas City. So my parents homeschooled us for a long time. And that you know, mostly predominantly white people are homeschooled and we were in a homeschooling community, just learning, you know, learning and growing up in that environment. I was on an all black swim team, which is kind of an oxymoron in and of itself. And we'd go to these meets and there's all like completely all white people. And there's like 15 black people. They just stick out like a sore thumb in the pool. I was on a black inner city football uh, team, a pop Warner league. Some of my closest and best friends and my, some of my parents' closest friends were white. One of my best friends was white. We went to a white church and then a black church, and then a white church again, and then a black church again. We had a white neighborhood down or a white family in our neighborhood, down the street in a black neighborhood. My upbringing was very, like 50, 50. And I don't think I had like in hindsight, I don't feel like I had a lot of challenges because my parents really created an environment where I just didn't feel that issue. I think the first time that it really, really I, I felt it was actually when I went to college. I always felt the the most, I guess, racial tension toward me from other Black people. In fact, because I I just wasn't quite Black enough, or I wasn't quite their style. And uh, I remember uh, signing up for the University of Missouri Black Business Association. It was like, oh, it seems like something I could you know, get involved in. And I go to the first meeting, and they had out as the food. Right there's chicken wings, there's Kool Aid, and there's like wafer cookies. And I'm like this is ridiculous. I'm I'm never coming back to this again. I felt like I get it. And, you know, in Mizzou, Columbia, Missouri, this is right around, there's a lot of racial tension going on right there. This is like the the beginning, almost of the Black Lives Matter movement. A lot of people came from that St. Louis right in that same time period. Uh, a few months into that, we had cotton balls were laid out all over the uh, lawn at the Mizzou Business Center, the Black Business School. So, Uh, That was one experience in in college that I was just like, okay, so there's there's definitely something here to be very aware of within my own people group. And then other people, there's a lot of people that really hate black people for sure. And then I remember in Vector, actually, a few years ago with uh, a group of DMs, we went to a Foo Fighters concert, which uh, I don't know that I have any business being at a Foo Fighters concert, but it was just a thing. We were in Wrigleyville and I wasn't allowed in. And uh it, there was other circumstances that happened but I found myself surrounded by five police officers and for the first time in my life I was actually pretty terrified. I was like mm. this is not a good situation that I want to be in right now. And uh I was really terrified. And I you know I've always been a law-abiding person but that was um I felt like this is happening because I'm black. So those are just some experiences I had I think you know growing up again I feel like I was relatively uh, well rounded but as I've gotten older and older I feel like I've seen a little bit more. Mm. It's interesting that, you know, for both
0: you and Kenny, your parents cultivated an environment where you were, I'm not going to say immune to a lot of these things, but that you were maybe shielded a little bit from a lot of these things or educated a little bit better regarding a lot of these things as you were growing up. And I think that that's an insight that maybe we could circle back to when we talk about some of the things that we could be doing to uh, improve the conditions for a lot of people. How about for you, Greg? Tell us about uh,
2: some of your experiences. Sure. I feel like I can relate to both of what they shared. But uh, yeah, I also grew up in a predominantly white area. And uh, I think growing up, just to summarize, it was kind of uh, an odd combination of trying to fit in and stand out. Where I really started to appreciate my color was, I guess I was a freshman in college, and uh, freshman or sophomore, and President Obama was first elected um, into office. And I remember voting for the first time. That was cool. But I just remember talking to my parents after, after he was elected, and uh, it was just, I mean, they grew up, they were born in the 50s, grew up in the 60s and 70s, and that's something that they never would have thought of happened, would ever happen, is having a black president. So I think conversations that I had with them and some other members of my family, it was really good to see, to like better understand the importance of black representation like beyond just maybe athletes and entertainers, but in real leadership positions. And uh, so that was maybe one of the first times that I I really felt like proud to be black versus feeling like I stuck out or couldn't fit in or Mm however I felt about it before. So
0: Right, right. You know, there was something one of you said as you were sharing with me right there about, you know, I was buddy when you had the experience in Wrigleyville where you said that happened because I was black. Kenny's dad is I would consider to be one of my you know favorite and top mentors in life. You know I've had the good fortune of having known him now for about uh nine eight or nine years, and he's wise like beyond almost anybody that I've ever met very, very influential person in Silicon Valley, and we've talked about a lot of different types of things from business to investing. And on occasion, issues of race have come up during some conversations. And I can specifically remember standing in Ken Coleman's house and we were somehow this subject came up and Ken said to me, you know, in an effort to try to get me to help understand this issue a little bit at a little bit of a new level, he said to me, Dan, you've never ever had something happen to you in your life and had the thought cross your mind, hmm, I wonder if that happened because I'm black. It's like you've never had that experience. And that really hit me hard in that moment. And to this day, like that is still a, a moment in time that comes back to me a lot where I'll see something happen. I might not completely understand it, you know, because I haven't I haven't lived through the same sort of experiences. And I'm just wondering, are there experiences that people like me might not be able to relate to that people of color experience all the time? I, I know the answer to that question is yes, you know what, what do you feel the, they are? What, what are the, the, the things that people of color experience over and over again that someone like me might not relate to that it would help for
3: people to hear you guys describe? I don't know any white people who are afraid when they get pulled over. I just don't. I've talked to too many. I have many white friends and colleagues and, or other, either other cultures like they are afraid when they get pulled over nervous, of course, because you always kind of wonder what you're getting pulled over for. But when you're black, like there's some fear, even if you know you didn't do, haven't done nothing wrong and are super confident, there's just some fear, right? Cause you know, we've seen these videos, right? We've heard these stories. I think the scariest thing is having to have a different kind of conversation with your kids, or getting that conversation from your from your parents, right? About hey, you know, you got to be careful. You got to have you know you're having a conversation you really shouldn't have to have with really anybody, right? But you're they're telling you to be be careful because you are black, and that's the only reason they're telling the story. So I think just things like that, and and of course you know getting police called on you for nothing, which I believe you know is what Buddy said earlier, right? I mean things like that happen have happened to me a, a number of times, and so. I would say, you know, those are some things and then like something that you probably don't think of is people walking across the street instead of walking by you. Right? Because they make they're just afraid of you. No no matter what you're wearing, what you look it's just they're afraid of you.
1: And so <laughs> things like that. And maybe if I could maybe if I could add to that, Dan, there is a I don't think in any other culture, well there might be, but I think specifically for black person people, there's just there's a buzzword out there that like you just, if you hear it, you don't know how to respond. I'm specifically talking about the N word. My wife asked me this the other day, she goes, how would you respond if someone called you the N word? And I was like, that's a really deep and perfect, like, deep question to ask me. Considering the fact that it's like, literally like a second, that's common as word B in all, you know, rap and everything like that. And you know, you hear other people, you hear white people can rap a song or say something like that. Black people say it all the time, potentially. And then yet it's supposed to be super offensive, you know, in certain contexts. It's really, really interesting that that even exists. It's just like the elephant in the room for a lot of people. Mm. Oh, I would also say you'll have people who will change the
3: way they talk. <laughs> the first time they have a conversation, they'll change the way they talk. They'll talk in slang. And you can just tell that that's not how they usually talk. And it's, it's offensive. It's like, you know, it's not an accent. Like, you know, like you hear someone from Texas, Texas. Texas accent, you may speak in that accent, right? Because they're from Texas. But they will talk in slang, have never heard you talk before, they'll start to talk in slang. You're just like, not all black people talk like that. They're patronizing yeah. you. Yeah, exactly, right? And so it's just things like that. They probably don't think it's racist, but man, you're like, sitting on the other side of it's like, really, What well, you think that's like, that's okay? Like, you think we all talk just talk like that? So things like that. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I do feel like the first concept to be able to create solutions is awareness and that's why i wanted to kind of ask you guys those questions is just for people to be able to listen and to hear what have been some of your experiences and and be able to kind of connect to that a little bit so what i really want to get into is where do we go from here like what happens next what are some of the ways that we can solve these deep problems that exist in our society and maybe the way i could ask you this question and i'll start with you kenny is you know what do you wish that people knew or what do you wish that people believed or what do you wish that people would do that could help improve the ways that we all interact with one another
3: i think when it comes to interaction i mean this is not just about our communities interacting with each other but this is i think it's people in general right is just trying to gain the other's understanding of the other Right. And, and then the second thing is, I would say, is have empathy. Right. I can't ever know what it's like to be white, but I try to put myself in those shoes. I try to be empathetic to any plight, right? Or any plight of any person and judge them on that. Right. So I just think having that empathy, even though it's maybe something that doesn't affect you personally, I think, and then trying, trying to understand that point of view, I think that's just super important. Just have healthy relationships. I think a vector, right? Like, in a sales job, that's kind of what you do with your customer, right? You, you're asking questions to understand what the kind of struggle is, and then you try to work on finding the solution, right? Mm-hmm. And I think those same skills are transferable to trying to understand other people in other cultures. Oh. So I just think that's that's super important. And the other thing I would harp on is I think just knowing history, and this is a, definitely an educational gap here, and I have a problem with the education, particularly because we tend to cover up a lot of history in the United States. And because we cover up that history, people just don't know that things happen. And if you knew these things happened, you might have a more empathy because you would be knowledgeable about them, right? But they just don't teach a lot of the sordid history of the United States. And unfortunately, that disregards a lot of the struggle that Black people have gone through.
0: Yeah. You know, this particular incident with George Floyd, I think is bringing out a whole lot more awareness than probably anything I've seen in my lifetime in people outside of the Black community, right? It's like, not only are African American people rallying right now, but so is everybody else, right? Like, there's so many white people who are coming out in droves to support their African American friends and brothers and sisters in their communities, and because they really, you know, they really see that you know this is something that's that's worth us talking about and getting to know. And so I do feel like that idea of knowing history is being changed right now. Um, you also talked about empathy and understanding, and, and Kenny, I, I think that empathy and understanding starts with somebody really wanting other people's best interest and really caring about other people. And we just have to develop a deep understanding that we're all we're all humans. We're all people. It's like, just because of the pigment of our parents' skin affected ours, it shouldn't affect how we have to interact with, with with people on a daily basis. I don't know. These are just some of the thoughts I had as you were sharing there, Kenny, about what you thought. Greg, how about you? Let me ask you the same question about what do you wish people knew or what do you wish people believed or what do you wish people did that could Make an impact, a positive impact on the ways
2: we interact with one another. Sure, I would. Well, one belief I I try to hold is that there's there's very few, if any, inherently bad people in the world. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it really serves us to think that way or to believe that about somebody else or by about a group of people. I mean, you know, people do bad things, and more often than not, it comes from a a good place or, you know, under even some, some bad intentions comes like maybe they're just trying to protect, you know, what they they're trying to protect their family. They're trying to do what they feel is right. So I, I think sometimes, you know, it's, it's really especially times like right now, it's really tough to have compassion for the other side. I think police officers right now, like a lot of time many of them right now, or many people aren't necessarily giving the benefit of the doubt and they certainly deserve it. And I think on the other side, there's other people that can be you know understood a little bit better. So when we really get to know somebody and know their story, like if a good friend of us does something that rubs us the wrong way, we give them the benefit of the doubt because we know them and we understand that they're a good person. And I think kind of to your point, we're all on team human here. So I think we should really just appreciate that there aren't bad people. just sometimes they do things that we don't agree with.
0: Yeah. You know, I think that your point that there are very few you know inherently bad people is really a, an important thing for people to remember because i look at people for example saying you know hey all the rioters are bad somebody should be able to defend their business with force etc and there probably are some of the people who are rioting that are criminals who are looking to take advantage of you know the situation but there are other people who are rioting because they f- perhaps they feel like it's their only it's the only way the voice can be heard. It's like they're fed up. And I think that, you know, we have to have some kind of compassion versus condemning everyone. Uh, and it's the same goes for our police officers. I think all of us could agree that the vast, vast majority of our police officers are good people who are there to protect and serve. And then we have to have compassion for, for them versus letting this one reflect on all. So I think that is an important insight. Buddy, what would you like to, to share on this
1: yeah. one? Yeah, so... I had a different viewpoint when I, I think I'm I'm generally based on my upbringing. I think I'm kind of slow to play the race card generally. And uh, when I watched this video a few times, I was trying to like, see like, okay, is this a racial thing? You know, there's, there's four cops to which I don't know that are, I don't think they're white. One definitely wasn't the other one. You know, I don't know if he was like white, he might've been Latino or something like that. But, you know, they just stood around while like, they just literally like, it was like a bully like watching a door while three people beat up a kid inside. That's how I I viewed it. I was like, this is like this is beyond racism. These are people that are like they're like overcompensating with this macho feeling of the fact that they have this badge, they can they can do whatever they want. And I think there's a systematic issue with that in the policing world. And I think it really starts with leadership. I think that, you know, the fish rot at the head. I think these guys, were cops, just fuel their ego. They weren't cops to really protect and serve, mm-hmm. and that's really what needs to change. I think. Yeah. Who's training the cops? Who's like doing their daily pep talk? And I don't know if this is a real thing or not, but uh, it might be something I see on TV shows. And I see this macho cop get up and give a pep talk and give everyone their assignments, and he seems like he's uh, he's overcompensating or being, you know, he's got this brute mentality. And yes, being a cop takes confidence. I think I have a, a lot of family that are that are in law enforcement. But I also think that we need to, like, this is just a job where you can't have people that are like that, you know, Um, no matter how tough it is, you just can't have people like that in in law enforcement.
3: Yeah, I think it comes down to training. I mean, the police officer's job is to protect and serve the public. Your job is, as a police officer, is to de-escalate. And so often on these videos, you see them absolutely escalating the the situation. Right. 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 Um, That's just not their, that's just not their role. And so I definitely think things that come down to training, for sure. And then, you know, I think they do let people in that clearly shouldn't be officers, right? I really think the system's broken because what's frustrating now is as Black people, we've kind of moved the goalposts where at first it was, we're upset, just stop killing us. And now it's almost like, okay, you're killing us, but at least prosecute, right? Put them in jail, right? Punish them have accountability and you don't see the accountability right and so I think that's a big portion of it is you you even see this officer that killed uh, George he had a number of infractions on his record right and I don't know if you saw my post this week but I, I shared a post that Chris Rock did a stand-up on it uh, on this on this exact issue at one point and he basically said that you know there's certain jobs that bad apples you just can't have bad apples that are that aren't dealt with Right. And so like he, he uses the example, like a pilot, like you can't have a pilot and, and have American airline come out and say, yeah, well, sorry, we just had one bad pilot and they crashed the airplane. Like, that's just not what you can do. It's just that one of those jobs where you have an elevated position where you just need, needs to be more accountability
1: than less accountability. Right. Right. And so I think that should be the expectation. Right. Just to kind of like, help people understand more i really think you know for me the whole reason why i wanted to you know speak on this is because you know i have kids and i think that my kids are going to be either you know they're mixed race and i think that they're going to have these issues or these challenges one of the kids who's you know five six seven year old kid is going to say something to them one time right and then you're the one who who said this uh i've heard you say this many times but no one can make you feel a certain way right you get to choose how you feel about stuff. And I think that's important to ingrain that in kids. If you're a parent, I think it's important to ingrain that in your kids' minds is to like, they get to choose their reaction to stuff and not. So if someone did call them the N word, how are they, gonna that, right? mm. are they going to respond to that? Right. Are they going to get angry, be upset, be mad, or are they just going to have some pity on that person and move on? You know, and that's, that's really what I want to try to you know, teach to my kids. I really do think it starts in the home with, the, you know, parenting your kids. For
0: sure, a lot of influence starts with parenting. I want to bring this full circle back to vector a little bit because, you know, Kenny and I have a friend uh, in the diversity and inclusion space who says, uh, you can't be what you don't see, right? And I feel like one of the things that we need to be striving to do is to create successes that are a diverse range of successes in every industry, in every place, right? It's just we, we need to help everybody to the best of our ability to be able to do well. And that, that means putting a lot more resources into you know, education and a lot of things early on. Vector is a place where a lot of young people come at 18, 19 years old and have a chance to gain a lot of insights and skills and things that can help make them successful. And I do feel like a big part of our responsibility, if we want to be a company that changes lives, is that we take on a diverse range of people to work with our company. And that we help them to grow and help them to succeed. I think that we try in this area. I think that Vector probably has a large, larger percentage of white people in management and leadership roles for several reasons. One of them might be societal. It, you know, part of it is that in Vector, people's success oftentimes begins with their own personal resources and their own personal referrals, and you know, it's probably a reality that the average white kid has more better resources than the average black kid out there and, and that's a problem that we can fix, but that's not necessarily Vector's problem to fix. But at the same time, you know, in our company another issue we have is that we, we need to be able to have more diverse people in positions of leadership. You two guys, Greg and Buddy, you are our two African American division managers. We have forty something division managers and, and you're you are the two that we have. And it'd be nice if that two became five or ten right? It'd be nice if it became five even, right? And so I think that it'd be great for us to bring this you know, back to Vector and for me to be able to ask you two guys, what do you feel are some of the ways that uh, we can make Vector a place where all sorts of people are welcomed and encouraged? Buddy, why don't you take that one first?
1: Yeah. So I, I think I have a really cool vantage point. My region manager is Bolivian. He'll be the first to tell you he's Bolivian, not white. Yes. Um, <laughs> and that's Mr. Mike Muriel. I think it just starts with giving somebody that opportunity. And, uh, you know, he gave me the opportunity to step up. And now my division, even though it's in, in its infant stages, is extremely diverse. I have four women as branches. My pilot is a woman. I have a black branch. I had a black DM for five years. That my right hand man. I had a Latino. The white people are a minority in my division, in fact. And so what I will say is, I feel that what I'm doing right now is definitely paving the way for those who would otherwise maybe use race as an excuse as to why they can't succeed. And now it's like you're coming up under a black DVM, you should be able to get there. You, you have no excuses to not be able to succeed. And another thing is, I feel like it makes the success that much greater. You know you're you're running in a race where, yeah, you might not have the same resources or you might have some disadvantages or some bumps along the road. But when you experience all those challenges uh, to get to where you are, I think it makes you an even greater leader. And that's a really compelling vision, I think, for um, people that are coming up. And that's something that I really want to, you know, share to the the diverse people that I get to work with. Mm, Great insights. How about you, Greg?
2: Yeah, I would say um, the spirit of our Vectors recruiting philosophy attracts all kinds of people to our program. So one of the things that we do... I'm sure many of the divisions do this, but at the beginning of our leadership academy, when we talk about to our new management candidates about why we recruit the way that we do and who we look for and who succeeds in Vector, we're very much people first business. And you know, one of the things I learned and I first moved into management is we we look for reasons to accept people, not to turn them away, and we find ways to to help them succeed. And I, I've had the opportunity being in the Northeast region of the country. To run offices in different territories, some more urban and some more suburban, and being in Bergen County, New Jersey, it's like it's like the United Nations, uh, our president calls it. And uh, and what I found is, I mean, success is really regardless of what you know where it comes from. You know, success is really the same for everybody. You know, you work hard, you follow the programs that we lay out, you have the right attitudes. I mean, so I think a, a way that we can continue to um, cultivate an environment where all kinds of people can succeed and thrive here is to continue to work on, or keep that, that, that spirit of our recruiting philosophy of looking for reasons to accept people. But then also, once on our team, continue to develop programs. I mean, you brought up a very good point about how certain reps from certain areas might have advantages that others don't. And if a manager is running an office that's in an area or closer to an area where those reps don't have those advantages, it's that leader's responsibility to still create a thriving organization and a successful program, which what's great about CutGo and Vector is it's been proven. And so I I think we do a good job, not just of finding great people from any area, but also to create a really strong program where they can succeed. And that commitment is as important as anything else.
0: Yeah, that was great. That was great. Uh, The the whole idea of looking for reasons to accept people, that applies Completely beyond vector, it applies to everything we've talked about here today, that the people could bring that mentality to their daily interactions, looking for reasons why they should accept people, not just for a job, but accept people uh, you know, for who they are and viewing people positively. I think that's so important. I want to add one thing on this as a, just a bit of a feedback or advice for all the vector leaders or, or any leaders who are listening. We were at a dinner, Kenny, and there were a couple influential African-Americans at this particular dinner. The point that came out from these two guys was basically this. It was, if you want to create a company with a lot of diversity, you got to stop having the mentality of, well, okay, I'm going to make sure I quit doing things that alienate you know these people. I'm going to make sure I quit doing things that alienate black people. or I'm going to quit doing things that alienate women. That's not the mentality to have. The mentality to have goes way beyond, I'm going to quit alienating certain people. It goes beyond that to say, I'm going to proactively do things that support different groups. I'm going to proactively do things that support African-Americans on my team. I'm going to proactively do things that support women on my team, or whatever group we would want to Mention, I'm going to proactively do things to support them. So when I think about, you know, leaders within Vector, and I think about a person running a Vector office and, you know, a black kid comes onto your team and starts having some success, like I think that it's our responsibility to latch on to that kid and to help that kid and pull them up. Maybe they have an environment at home, you know, like some of you guys might have had where you had a lot of success influences, but maybe they don't. And we could be that person that makes the difference for them. And so to me, it's a mentality of being proactive about, you know, deliberately helping people because you want to create that diverse environment because you understand that that diverse environment is then, it's then going to beget more of itself and create more of itself in, on your team. And it, it just helps create more and more widespread success if we start with that mentality. Let me ask you guys uh, as we wrap this up. Just about what you feel gives you the
3: most hope for the future. Kenny, want you tee off on this one? Honestly, I think it's one. The youth. I think the youth is uh, has kind of grown up in a time where it's very progressive. They're very much are able to organize, right? And so I think that gives me hope. Also, I think they're they're a lot more diverse as well, and and even Mike. I mean, obviously, my in the 80s 90s right my group of, of people i grew up with was more diverse and welcoming than the, the one before us right the era before us and so i think that will keep on getting better but i think i just people have given me hope during this time i always felt when this has when everything started that there was definitely a different energy to what i saw going on we've marched before we've had people you know celebrities stick up for us before there was more than your normal kind of group of celebrities. You know, your regular names would always kind of show up. You had police, which I think this is very important, particularly to my community relationship with the police, is you have police speaking out. And so when we talk about bad apples, what we're talking about is if you are an officer of the law and you see something that is unlawful, and because you're just part of this club or this gang of blue, that you're not going to say anything, that put you're a bad apple because your job is to right to be above that, and so I see them speaking out now. I see you know people across party lines speaking out now, right, and so I think that gives me hope because we've always kind of been in this fight in this country, but we've never been able to change anything by ourselves. We just don't have enough numbers, and so to see white people come out, Asian people come out, other countries marching in the streets and coming out in in support, it gives me a ton of hope when for a long time, there just hasn't been any because when someone gets killed, we think that it's gonna be the same old story again. We won't get justice. And so right now it feels like that the energy behind this is going that way. And I applaud all those people that are stepping up because it's not easy to, even, even though we know right from wrong, it's not easy for a white person who may have a group of white people who think the same way to stand up and say, Hey, this is wrong, knowing they're gonna get ridiculed, right? So I understand that. And so I think all those people that are doing that are heroes. I think those police officers that are standing up are heroes. And so they are what
1: gives me hope moving
3: forward. Yeah, awesome. Awesome.
1: Buddy, what gives you hope? Yeah, for me, I really think that just the leaders that are kind of up and coming, the youth, and I, you know, again, I have a really cool vantage point just being able to develop. Leaders and I feel like you know when I do that, there's a definitely a compounding effect for the future. I'm in, in impacting people at a really instrumental time in their life. Where they're doing their opinions on the world, and me as a black leader can show them like, hey, a black leader can be really good. You can be, can be really inspiring. Can be very successful. Can really you know mentor you and coach you. And uh, I, I really feel like what I do has a chance to really affect the culture in my area and really across the country and that's what makes me hungry to like recruit more and train more and get better at my craft and uh, lead better. I'd say definitely just the the environment that vector has to create other leaders and enable them that gives me a lot of hope just being in this environment. Another thing that I think is hopeful is with all the awareness is happening right now and it has been happening for a while, uh, one of my wife's friends reached out to her and just said. And my wife is white and her friend is white. So she just said, hey, what do you think we could do to support your family and help change things? Right. And I think just that question alone is mm-hmm. great. I think that gives me hope that, you know, there's people and, you know, that's maybe a suggestion, something you could do to reach out to your, your uh, colored friends and uh, offer support and, and just check in and say, hey, you know, if there's anything that I've ever done or do you feel like I can do better at XYZ? I think that's important.
0: Yeah, I do feel like, as I said before, that I'm seeing more of that from this situation than I feel like I ever have. And so it uh, definitely is a reason for some hope. Greg, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, all of you just said it. I mean, I really feel like, at least I want to believe that this event, I mean, as tragic as it was, can really be a turning point for what direction we start heading as far as this conversation goes. Just the amount of support from the different communities, black, white, you know, everywhere in between. So I I think the silver lining in this is that this seems to be a racially unifying time, oddly enough, even though there's a lot of chaos and turmoil, it doesn't seem divisive. It seems like everyone is outraged in their own way, and we know that there's something that we need to do. So I think from all this is coming love. I, I think that compassion that I'd mentioned earlier, I think more people are more aware of, you know, that being the important thing. And so all of that all together and conversations like this really give me a lot of hope hope moving forward.
0: Yeah, we're going through some days here as this really unfolds, where I've seen some level of division at time. But as you said, Greg, I think I I'm seeing more being a more of a racially unifying time than it has been divisive. And that, that again, to me is the difference between this incident, this situation, and a lot of other things in the past where I feel like the divisiveness has become greater and greater. Here, I think people are smart enough to realize that some of the people who are looting or starting fires are trying to sow seeds of division and they aren't representative of the protesters. And so I do think that uh, for the most part, people are coming together through this incident and that hopefully uh, hopefully, that
3: can continue at a greater rate here as we as we go forward. Any last words from anybody? No, nah, Dan, I just appreciate you, uh, you know, again, speaking on this subject. I think it's an important subjects to engage with. And, and again, it's hard to understand if you don't, you know, engage in these conversations and it's hard to see other people's perspectives, right, and learn. So appreciate you doing this.
0: All right. Cool. Well, thanks, fellas. I appreciate your guys' time.
3: Right, thanks, Dan. Bye, guys.
0: I hope you got something from that. It's really tough to do a subject like this justice in a short amount of time and basically in impromptu fashion, which is what that was. Uh, and what I hoped came out of that for everyone are a few things. First would be more of an understanding and empathy for the experiences that people have in this country merely because of the color of their skin. Buddy And Greg and Kenny are all highly educated men who grew up in middle or upper middle class families. And if they are experiencing things that might seem foreign to you, then imagine what others must be experiencing. The starting point of coming together is understanding others. So I really wanted that to come across. Second, I was hoping that people would develop a belief that every individual can Make some difference. Start from the paradigm of caring about all humans. Look for reasons to bring people of all sorts into your circles. And if you're in a position of leadership, especially in Vector, be proactive about helping people from marginalized groups to have a better experience under your guidance. Do what you can. And third, last, I hope that we can turn this challenging time in our history into one that becomes racially unifying, as Greg said in this conversation. This issue is not about blacks versus whites. It's not about people versus cops. This is about blacks and all people of color versus racism. The enemy here is something we can all despise, those people and views that espouse hate against others. If you're listening to this podcast, I know a little bit about you and I know that you're someone who wants to bring people together, not drive them apart. The ultimate enemy here is hate and it's worth making a stand right now against that wherever you see it rear its ugly head. I hope you found this episode inspirational and positive in the end and if you did, please share it with others. Thanks for supporting the podcast. And thanks for supporting our black and brown brothers and sisters in our communities, both in and out of Vector and Cutco. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of Changing Lives, Selling Knives, please consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player and hit the subscribe button so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives.